This truck contains lithium. That car can't run without lithium. And Elon Musk, the guy that builds these cars, will struggle to put his hands on enough lithium in this decade. Yet I found an abundant lithium source almost in my backyard. To develop it, I've traveled to four continents and met dozens of experts over the past 12 months. Let me take you through the journey step by step and reveal in the last part how I may soon be producing 20,000 tons of lithium per year while solving a major environmental hazard. Thanks a lot for having taken the time to, to study a bit my stupid little project. It's not stupid, it's fascinating and it's very exciting. Maybe I'll quit my job and join you. You may be onto something. You may not want to publish this podcast. Those concentrations are absolutely economic. If I wasn't focused on what we're building and I was looking for a project with a standalone company, I would definitely take a look at that for sure. I wish you the very best of luck in, in printing money. That's a very high quality lithium feed. The concentrations are very good. My favorite is, is feed one, but feed two equally, as you see, the economics for feed two are actually in your favor. So it would be a crazy idea not to proceed with that. Come on, what are you waiting? Jump in the car. History repeats. One century ago, the largest car manufacturer in the world had a problem. It could produce car, it could sell them, but it had no tires to put on them because rubber supply had not followed the boom in demand. So the richest man in the world, Henry Ford, stepped in and proceeded to build Fordlandia, a city in Brazil that would dedicate to the culture of rubber trees. A bit like a baker that would be tired of not getting any floor and would invest in wheat fields, floor mills and all the steps in between. Let's fast forward one century. Today, the largest car manufacturer in the world is no longer Ford but Tesla, yet the challenges ahead might look similar. For Tesla and its electric vehicles to achieve winning over traditional internal combustion engines, it will need the entire value chain to get up to speed. This is how, since the beginning of this decade, almost 100 battery gigafactories have been built and 200 more are to be commissioned until 2030. But to feed them with the lithium they need, all these plants still rely at 95% on the fuel production side that existed a decade ago. A handful of hard rock mines in Western Australia, another handful of evaporation ponds on the Argentina-Chile border, and the last handful of operations of both kinds in China. In total, that's slightly less than 600,000 tons of lithium carbonate equivalent that's produced every year when Tesla and all its peers will need at least 2 million tons by the end of the decade, if not more. Some estimate the need at 3 or even 5 million tons. Said differently, the International Energy Agency predicted that demand for lithium was set to grow 30-fold by 2030 and more than 100 times by 2050. So Elon Musk has a problem, Tesla has a problem, an entire industry has a problem, and the world who wants to decarbonize partially through electric vehicles has a problem. Yet, some happy few are pretty well off. Indeed, in under a year, the spot price of lithium was multiplied by six. And even though it crashed and peaked several times in between, the expert consensus is that this price isn't coming significantly back down anytime soon, at least in this decade. High prices, several bottlenecks on traditional supplies, and a tremendous impact for the ones that will be able to solve the lithium riddle. If that's not an incentive to get creative, I don't know what is. But did you notice that there's always been lithium in this studio right there? Let me grab it. Yep, that rock contains lithium. But I guess I shall explain where it comes from. For the entire 20th century, potash mining has been a key activity in the region I come from, South Alsace. We mined potash when we were German, and we mined potash when we returned to French. We kept mining when German again, and we certainly didn't stop when France took us back. But at the turn of the 21st century, the deposits started running out, stupid Australians and Canadians found better resources, and the company operating here started looking for new endeavors. They didn't go for lithium, yet there were signs. Since the 1970s, these Alsatian miners had been employed as consultants in about every single place in the world that's producing white oil today including the hottest of all lithium spots, Atacama. At the time, they of course looked for potash. Potash? What else? From their thorough exploration of all these undergrounds, they brought back an incredible collection of potash rocks, which you can see around me. They've also looked for fossils and geological treasures, but what they didn't notice at the time is that in each and every one of these rocks, there's lithium and quite a lot of it. So here's a message for all the lithium developers in the world. 
Before digging the underground, you'll probably want to double check with the Mining and Potash Museum and its team if the place you're looking for isn't already documented in the treasure room upstairs. And I won't show it on camera today, you'll have to come and visit yourself. Back in Alsace, a geologist, Laurent Gendre, has been thoroughly testing thousands of rocks in and around the potash deposit. And what he found out is that there's lithium in the first potash layer, in the second potash layer, as well as the intel layer. Is it that surprising? Well, not really. 35 million years ago, the plain of Alsace wasn't visited by the Rhine River, but by the sea. And when it got cut off from the sea, it stayed as a salt lake that evaporated for over 1 million years, leaving approximately 2,500 meters of sediments. So nothing so different from Utah's Salt Lake or, of course, Uyuni, Ola Rose or Atacama. Anyways, we've got lithium-rich potash and a global lithium deficit. I guess it's time to get real and mine it out to make a ton of money. I like money! But wait, how does one do that? Extracting lithium from rocks is currently done at scale essentially in two countries, China and Australia. Australia being by far the largest producer of the two. Great, let me jump down under where the voiceover gives you a bit of context. Hey, no, 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 stop! Wait, you're wasting your time! Okay, well, I guess it's activated airplane mode, so let me explain. In 2022, Australia dug out 47% of the world's lithium production, making it, of course, the largest producer of the raw resource. In Australia, lithium is found in a hard rock called spodumene at concentrations that usually reach 1.5%. But if you were to use that Australian lithium product and put it into a battery, your car wouldn't even start. Indeed, we're talking of a lithium-rich rock, but it's still a rock. For batteries, you need to have lithium a hydroxide with a purity of 99.95%. Not 99.5, but 99.95%. So how do you get from a 1.5% lithium content in spodumene to a 99.95% pure battery-grade lithium? Well, for a while, Australian miners didn't bother answering the question. They loaded rocks onto ships and sent them over to China for the Chinese value chain to deal with them. That approach, nicknamed Direct Supply of Ore or DSO, may sound quite ironic when you're shipping rocks with a growing carbon footprint for each mile they sail for them to later power low-carbon transportation. Yet, it was a convenient way to kickstart the lithium value chain as Chinese off-takers financed Australia's mining efforts. Nowadays, spodumene rocks get further crushed down and sorted to reach a lithium concentration of 6% on the mining spot before being sent to refining. But refining doesn't come for free. To process one ton of spodumene, you need 1.5 gigaula of natural gas, one gigaula of electricity, 24 tons of water and half a ton of sulfuric acid and sodium ash. So it's quite energy intensive. At the end of that process, you have battery-grade lithium in your hands, but as you've seen, even with lithium-rich rocks, it's a carbon-intensive process. And that's why I wanted to prevent me from the past from flying to Australia. Yes, there's lithium in that potash rock, but according to Laurent Jean's research, probably at best five times less than in Australian spodumene, which means multiple times more gas, electricity, water, sulfuric acid, and sodium ash to get it to battery grade, which simply makes it too expensive on all levels. I guess the dream is gone. I can't mine that rock for lithium, and I should call Elon to tell him my garden won't solve the world. Antoine speaking, yes. How much? Really? That's a game changer! Yes, as we just saw, low concentration rocks like potash aren't the right type for an economical lithium rock mining project. That almost only works with spodumene. But if my deposit geologically resembles Atacama and Ola Rose, I should rather try to emulate what they do there instead of stupidly trying to copy the Australians. So my apologies to Ellen can wait. I'm off to Argentina. Wait, don't leave that fast. Shit, why do I have to be so impulsive? Yes, emulating South America is already a much better idea, but ah, let me explain. 
What got me so excited is to receive those two water analyzers. Those are testings of two samples of water taken in the former potash mines some hundreds of meters under my feet. And they showcase lithium concentrations of respectively 310 and 430 ppm. Where does this lithium come from? Pretty simple, lithium exists in solid form mixed up with a bunch of other minerals in salt flats, so when they meet water, for instance when it rains, those minerals get dissolved and taken into the underground aquifer and that's why, usually, when there's a salt flat or deposit, you'll find underground water that's very salty, hence called brines. Depending on the mineral mix and how lucky you are, you'll find different types of lithium concentrations in these brines. And the richest of them all are found in a specific region across the south of Bolivia, the northwest of Argentina and the northeast of Chile, the region we call the Lithium Triangle. There, you'll often see concentrations hovering around 600 or 700 ppm, so even though my 310 to 430 range is lower, it's not ridiculous at all. So from a resource point of view, that trip to Argentina may bring me closer to the truth, yet it might also help me identify new challenges. Let's find out. Welcome to Salta, the world's capital of lithium. Actually, if Salta is the capital of the lithium world, it's not because they're producing lithium here, it's because there are lots of offices of lithium companies based in the city, which is the largest of the region, one of the three regions in Argentina to produce lithium, Salta, Catamarca, and Jujuy. The actual mines are much higher in the mountains and we'll go visit them later on today. But for now, let's have a look around. Everywhere across town you'll find offices of the lithium companies like just on the other side of the road with Hanak, but also with Galaxy Lithium, Rincon Lithio, Zelendez, Lilac, Ganfeng, Eramine, Posco and many more. But to see this project in action, you have to leave Salta's comfort and its 1,100 meters altitude to start climbing much higher in the Andes. Today, three mines actively produce lithium in Argentina. Livens Phoenix operation in Salar de Hombre Muerto at an altitude of 4,000 meters, Alchem's plant in Olaros at an altitude of only 3,900 meters, while the third lithium Argentina Scotchery Olaros is Alchem's neighbor, as we'll see in a minute, and just kicked off its operation at the time I was in Argentina. As the two Olaros twins are closer to Salta than Hombre Muerto, that's where I'm heading now to understand how they produce and find out what I can copy back home. But if I'm honest, at the moment I hit the road, there's excitement, but also a little bit of apprehension. I've heard the stories of the ones that were not a fit with these altitudes. I know I may get dizzy or even worse. Plus, it's a pretty long journey. You'll have to do it over several days. But at least in the first part, there's a real road. So from Salta, I'm heading to the north and to my evening stop in Purma Marca and its world-famous Seven Colors Mountain. And while I settle for the night, I can't help but notice that if people appreciate the jobs that come with lithium and uranium mining in the region overall, it also triggers some tensions. It's a new day in the high Andes and we are ready to see the goal of our trip. Here, they're producing lithium in a very specific way, which is the one we may want to emulate for our project. We'll see how they do it, in which conditions, and what's to learn about the Argentinian way to produce lithium. But before emulating any kind of approach, I have to hit the road again, still a paved one for now, and head this time to the west. The road is beautiful until the first big pass. And then it gets even better. You feel like you landed on the moon. I crossed the first large cellar in Salinas Grandes, drove along endless straight lines with the most scenic views I had ever seen right and left, passed through breathtaking canyons, and was amazed to see that next to my quite well-adapted pickup, there were many, many trucks on that road, minding their business and feeding back and forth the various industrial operations you'd find along that road. Finally, I noticed some evaporation ponds in the distance, telling me it was time to take a crossing on the right, to leave the paved road and stop at immediate proximity of all camps operational sites. Yep, it's time to crack their secrets.
So we are in the Sala of Ola Rose where Argentina produces lithium for a while in the plant just behind me and we'll be producing a bit more in a close future because there's another plant which is being built on the other side of the road. Here the process is pretty simple. Water is pumped from an underground aquifer brought to the surface in evaporation ponds where it will stay for 12 to 18 months until it's sufficiently concentrated so that it can be used and shipped to lithium refining. To do that, you have to leverage the place's advantages and overcome the drawbacks. Let's start with the advantages. First, we're in the middle of a desert, which means a lot of space, which is also called free real estate. The second, being in a desert has additional perks, such as having the right climate to evaporate the brines. Third, and maybe less visible, the lithium resource here is very rich. You have concentrations inside the lithium triangle, which you basically don't see at any other place in the world. But now you have also drawbacks. First, of course, you're in the middle of nowhere, which means that logistics can be a hassle. To give you an example of that, the single day I was on that road, I crossed two trucks that had overturned on their sides. Second, you don't have that much water as it is still a desert, which means you have to be a good steward of your water available. And third, it's pretty tricky to work here because at 4,000 meters height, you can start having altitude sicknesses and that is an impediment for people to work here. By the way, call me lucky or well prepared by the wealth of advice I received from my colleague Ezekiel, but I was fine. But more broadly speaking, if we try to balance the advantage and the drawbacks, the advantages are a clear winner. And the proof of that is that 20 years ago, there were two operations in Argentina. And right now, we see that there are 20, if not more, projects in development at various stages, ranging from early exploration to pilot stage, in construction and soon to be commissioned. I actually also visited Solta to attend the leading lithium conference in the region and maybe in the world. Within the last 10 years, that event grew tenfold. And if only half the claims I heard during the breaks were right, my 20 projects in development figure are a very wild understatement. But that shows that the role of Argentina in the lithium value chain is about to evolve because from one of the producers, it's going to become one of the leading producers in the world. But back to our project, what we'd like to understand is if we want to use evaporation ponds, can we replicate those conditions and can we find the right balance between advantages and drawbacks? Let's look at that. Let's start with the good news. Alsace would happily overcome all of the Andes drawbacks. It's at the heart of Europe, well connected through highways, railroads, airports and even river through the Rhine which makes a smooth transition to the second drawback we happily avoid. There's plenty of water and finally, come on, where on earth would it be easier to work? But on the other hand, in evaporation ponds, there's evaporation, which kind of requires as little rain as possible. My proposed spot in Alsace is, believe it or not, the second driest in France just after Perpignan and receives an annual rainfall of 550 millimeters. Yet, as you probably can tell by comparing the two sides, in Ola Rose, yearly precipitations are below 100 millimeters. That's over five times less. As we see in Ola Rose as well, evaporation ponds take a lot of space, which is not a big deal in a desert, but would be stupidly expensive in my project region. So we're down to only one surviving advantage, the resources quality, which, if it's still not as good in Alsace as it is in Argentina, is decent enough to keep calling it an advantage. But that's all for nothing if you can't extract it. So back to square one, I'd better warn Mr. Musk that my backyard will need to give up. Unless? Unless what? Unless there would be a third way to produce lithium? A third way? But we said in the beginning that lithium is only produced in mines and evaporation ponds. That's true as of today. But among others, some Canadian companies are developing a new approach called direct lithium extraction or DLE. Canada, you said? Well, see you there. Oh, for God's sake, stop doing that. Too late. He's gone. You know what? I won't stop him this time because he might finally be onto something with DLE. The principle is still to tap into lithium-rich brine resources, but this time, instead of letting it evaporate over years, you'll use some technology to isolate and extract lithium in pretty much one step, hence the name direct lithium extraction. This is of course an oversimplification and there are several big families of DLE processes. 
You've got ionic changers, solvent extraction, adsorption, membrane processes, precipitation, and even electrolysis. But overall, the principle is to go from raw resources to lithium chloride most of the time, in minutes and over a few technological steps, as we'll see in a jiffy. As I just alluded to, the reason why that third path to extract lithium is less known than hard rock mining or evaporation ponds is that today it's not deployed at a commercial scale anywhere in the world, with arguably some nuances. I have to uh, respectfully correct you. I think the the DLE or the DLS, the, the absorption has been around for a long time commercially. Liven have been operating their plant um, in South America, Argentina. 1906. China's actually got four sorption plants. The exact same sorbent that we're using in China have been operating for decades. So there's actually a number of commercial scale um, sorption. Um, in fact, at the moment, as we understand it, adsorption um, and sorption accounts for 10% of the lithium supply globally. So that definitely, underneath the DLE umbrella, um, is commercial. There have not been really legitimate end-to-end -end DLE commercial plants built. There is a DLE system operating in South America that's been operating for some time, Generation 1, and it's bolted to an evaporation pond. So that plant's been around for some time. And then there's also some DLE CRC plants in China. So to be clear, DLE has been used from times to times in lithium extraction since 1998, but always in combination with evaporation ponds, which, as we saw just minutes ago, are not a suitable option for my project and never as a standalone end-to-end -end process. Yet, DLE has a lot of perks. First, as you now can be very selective with your lithium extraction, you don't need your raw resources to be as highly concentrated as with evaporation ponds. For instance, we could today produce battery-grade lithium out of regular seawater. It would be crazily expensive, but technically feasible. Then, that greater flexibility with raw resources also enables many new geographies to pretend to produce lithium. And in an era of geopolitical tensions, being able to reduce your dependency on imports from China, but not only, is a major asset for many countries that discover more or less concentrated lithium resources somewhere under their feet. Third advantage of DLE, especially for people like me... Bloody French people? No, water people. It leverages technologies that are very well known if you're a water professional. We could even postulate that DLE is... A glorified water processing facility, because that's what the lithium extraction is. It's just a water processing facility. So indeed, with DLE, you won't have to reinvent the wheel, but to more or less adapt stuff that's known for a while in the water sector, or that was technologically known in the sector, but too expensive to thrive if it was just used to clean water. Lithium being of much higher value today, this technology finds a new playground to blossom. That's why I'm heading to Canada, because as much as Salta we just left was the capital of evaporation ponds, and... As much as Australia is the reference when it comes to rock mining, Canada develops a thriving ecosystem for direct lithium extraction. Those are the people I wanted to meet here in Vancouver, and that meeting happens right now. Indeed, meeting a direct lithium extraction company in British Columbia is as easy as taking a walk through downtown Vancouver. Let me show you some. Right behind me, there's Argentina Lithium, and just there, there's Lithium Americas. That's Century Lithium. And right there, you got Sigma Lithium, Ultra Lithium, and Lithium South. And here we got Standard Lithium, and we'll get to know them a bit better. But before getting into the specifics of a direct lithium extraction project with the standard lithium executives, let's get a better understanding of the technological principle of DLE. Generation 1 DLE, which has been around for over 20 years, it's an alumina-based absorbent. The alumina-based absorbent, the lithium-containing water flows by it. So it's either a powder or a resin-like material. Flows by it, and that absorbent grabs the lithium. Okay, so that's fine and dandy, but now you need to release the lithium. The way you do that is you stop flowing the brine past the absorbent. You now flow water past the absorbent. Mm -hmm. It's a water elution, so alumina-based water elution. And it works, and you can very mildly concentrate the lithium, but more importantly, you reject a whole pile of total dissolved solid and salinity. You're essentially improving the lithium to TDS ratio. Generation 2 is a different fundamental technology. That's where you have a titanate or manganese oxide-based absorbent. You again flow the lithium brine past it, and it grabs the lithium. And it does a better job at grabbing the lithium, but there's a catch. In order to elute the lithium from the absorbent, you need to wash it with acid. Mm -hmm. Thermodynamics again, kinetics. Generation 2 DLE plants are, quote-unquote, hooked on drugs for many, many years, right? So they have to keep pumping acid into the system. When you pump acid into a system, you lower pH. That means you then have to add base to elevate pH again. Generation 2 has a very significant advantage in that it can concentrate lithium. It can achieve a higher t lithium to TDS ratio. It's a 
capital cost smaller plant, but the operating costs are higher because you're constantly having to elute with acid and adjust with base. Most DLE plants have a chlor alkali plant bolted next to them in concept to produce the acid and base that will be continuously used. You mentioned Generation 1, Generation 2. It's tempting for me to ask, is there a Generation 3 in the pipeline? There's a lot of people working on Generation 3. University levels, national lab levels, some startup companies. We're watching it closely and it'll be exciting to see what comes out. Just a quick aside in our story, if you're interested in these Generation 3 approaches, I dived much deeper into it on my podcast. The links are in the description. You'll see that it's a fascinating word full of wisdom we'll use later on today. But before trying to find our way in the maze, we have a preliminary question to answer. Is direct lithium extraction a good fit for my project? It's kind of stupid what I'm doing because I'm doing that on record and people might be stealing that idea, but it sounds to me like I could become a billionaire with your help. <laughs> so <laughs> in preparation for our discussion, I sent you my analysis of water. Yes. And uh, let me start with the lithium itself. Mm -hmm. I compared it to what I knew. So I compared it to Vulcan's project in, in Germany and I compared it to the Salton Sea in the US and my sample has almost twice the lithium. Is that good news? On the surface, yes. But there's a metric in lithium that a lot of people don't speak about and that's the lithium to TDS ratio. When you say on the surface, yes, I would expect that my lithium to TDS ratio is very bad. You're better than the Salton Sea. Uh, you're not as good as Vulcan. Your lithium, am I allowed to disclose to your listeners what your lithium concentration is? You can. All right, so uh, your lithium concentration is very good. It's 300 to 430 milligrams per liter versus the Salton Sea in this data set being 200, sometimes a bit higher, and then Vulcan being 200. So you absolutely have higher lithium concentration. But then if we get into the chemistry, Vulcan's lithium to TDS ratio for our <coughs> resource is 002. Yours is 0013, whereas the Salton Sea is 001. And your TDS is very, very high. So although you've got this 300 or 400 milligrams per liter lithium, your TDS is 240 to 360,000. So it's nearly saturated. And that's why you must use DLE. If you just try to evaporate the water off and precipitate out the salt to concentrate up the lithium, you'd lose all the lithium with the precipitated okay. salt. So you need DLE. Thanks a lot for having taken the time to, to study a bit my stupid little project. It's not stupid. It's fascinating. <laughs> you, you may be onto something. You may not want to publish this podcast. Well, I published a podcast. Honestly, isn't that the best of all reasons to subscribe? I'm giving out my best ideas for free every week, even when they might trigger a multi-billion project. So what are you waiting? Smash that like button and let's move on to the next step. As we just established with Ben Sparrow, DLE could finally be the right solution for my project. Good news, Ellen, this time I'm on track to solve your problem. But there are still many, many questions to answer, like where do I start? How, what do I need? And here, the best strategy is probably to emulate the path of the pioneers in the field. I may want to impress Mr. Musk, but it doesn't prevent me from following his nemesis Mark Zuckerberg's wisdom. Don't be too proud to copy. Thank you for hosting me in your beautiful and scenic Vancouver offices. It is beautiful today. You came on a lucky day. You can see the Grouse Mountain with the fresh snow there. It's a gorgeous day here. Yep, that's me taking notes and trying to copy. I've been told by market experts that if someone can make it happen, this DLE at commercial scale, it's going to be standard lithium and it's going to be a okay. Lanxus project. Maybe others might do it in the future, hopefully for that sector, but you are expected to be the first company to manage that. So what's the special trick? We have been able to deploy our time and most of the capital we've raised on advancing an integrated process, not having to throw tens of millions of dollars into developing the resource and having to get the permits and then do the drilling and all of the reservoir development work to define whether you actually have a viable lithium asset to develop. That's really a piece of advice heard from all of my interlocutors. Whenever you can leverage the existing, you should do so. Sure, my former potash mine stopped producing 25 years ago and they don't have the type of pipe brand infrastructure, standard lithium as in Arkansas, but the pits exist and are still in use nowadays. So I guess that's a good point for my project. And in a region that's been mining stuff for centuries, jurisdiction should hopefully play in my favor as well. Now, taking stuff out of the ground is one thing, but you will also generate waste brine in the process, which you'll need to manage. Do you know if you have a means to dispose the brine after you've extracted the lithium? You need to find a place to put it and find a place to put it that it doesn't frustrate or disrupt your lithium resource. You know, you've extracted lithium, you put the brine back underground, you might just be diluting your lithium resource. Mm -hmm. Because that's critical when you're looking at applying 
underlying a direct extraction process, doesn't matter how great the resource is, you don't have the ability to re-inject it. And that is critical and it gets overlooked on the DLE side that not every salar has the conditions so that you can pump and re-inject with either the re-injection not depleting your resource or impacting your fresh water or spending a lot of time holding hands and explaining to the communities and the permitting regulatory groups on how you're going to do that. That's a specific perk of my former potash mine location. Reinjecting brines might not be needed at all. Indeed, since the 1930s, the former mining company had established a brine pipeline that collects to produce brines along the various mining pits and leads them to the opener canal I'm walking through right now, which then flows to the Rhine River. Sure, you have to be a good steward of the amount of brines you reject to the Rhine, especially since there were international agreements over it in the 1970s. But with the volumes we're discussing for a direct lithium extraction project, we're very, very far from the brine amounts that were once the norm when the mines were operating, or even when they dissolve the huge mines like Ips. So good news, I'm pretty sure we have that covered as well. Now the next thing we have to look for is water. Water is critical on every project. If you chose a project in an area that's under extreme drought and water stress conditions, you may have chosen the wrong project to look at regardless of the lithium concentrations or how favorable the mining jurisdiction is because water is critical. Okay, that part is easy. We're in the Rhine River's aquifer, one of the richest in water in the world. So we've got plenty of water and surely enough. But that's for water as a resource. The other aspect of it is water as an underground carrier of lithium. Your lithium resource, how much water is there? Is it just one underground mine that once you've extracted it, you're said and done? Or is that replenished and does, does the lithium continuously flow in? Whenever I think about how to envisage a fluid-based resource, I always, given a preference, would want it to be in a, in a porous media uh, formation rather than a fractured media formation. The distribution of the resource, the way which behaves when you induce a pressure gradient on it, i.e. when you try and pump it or put it back into the formation in a porous media, it's much more predictable. You can understand how it will behave over not just days and years, but decades and centuries, potentially. As much as the other part was easy, this one is tricky. It is actually courtroom tricky, as the French state and the regional authority regularly debate that topic in front of various jurisdictions. In short, the French state believes there is limited porosity and water flux in the former mines, while the regional authority and local associations think otherwise. Lately, courts have tended to rather agree with the locals, but that's not so much of my business for today. What's agreed on is that the porosity is higher in the former mines than it is in the regular underground, and this is for at least as long as the mining caves aren't fully closed, a phenomenon that occurs naturally. So let me take a note here. If we want to tick all the boxes and continue developing that project, we'll need to better understand hydrogeological flows. A topic for which I have ideas. I told you that field is easier when you're a water professional. Water pros might also look with confidence at Robert Mintak's next recommendation. DLE is the heart of the process, the selective extraction. But what's overlooked by analysts and commentators is it has to be a completely integrated process. Mm -hmm. So the selective extraction, you're doing it 24 hours a day. Every minute of every hour of the day, at commercial scale, thousands of gallons per minute need to come into your facility and it needs to operate in a way that at two o'clock in the morning, an operator is going to make sure that the plant is running and it's, if there is an issue that it's addressable. So the pre-treatment stage is critically important. The selective extraction stage, the stripping stage, removing novelty from that as best you can and using industrial processes that you have confidence in. There are certain process components that you can integrate from existing brine operations. The post-extraction stages where you need to purify your lithium chloride into consistently high purity final product, that's critical. What I'm noting down on my textbook here is remove novelty as best as you can, which is a bit what I implied with my don't be too proud to copy quote from Mark Zuckerberg. And when it comes to leveraging as much standard stuff as possible, well, I guess Ben Sparrow established he would be interested in the project, so we may have that covered as well. Now I've briefly touched on a key point with my courtroom story a couple of minutes ago, but the sociological aspect of the project is certainly not to be overlooked. How receptive are the people who live who live in the area and, and actually own the resources? How amenable are they going to be to, to uh, people turning up from from Canada, particularly people with funny accents like mine, 
uh, saying, hey, we'd like to do something in your backyard. I've shown you in Argentina how there can be local concerns linked to lithium extraction. Honestly, similar reluctance might be expected in France. I guess I could explain how such an operation would bring a lot in terms of sustainability in this very specific area. You'd be bringing back jobs where they kind of vanished with the end of mining. You'd secure a lithium resource next to the historic epicenter of Peugeot's production. You'd secure strong synergies with the chemical industry located from Tan to the Rhine River through Mulhouse. All of this while pumping up brines which are a concern to some and potentially cleaning them up while extracting lithium. There is potential for a win-win-win-win. But it's a note to take down for me here and ensure everyone understands it that way if I want to move on with the project. Finally, and of course, once we've taken care of all that housekeeping, we need to pick the right DLE technology. Utilizing a selective extraction process would be critical for that. You have to have a process that's fully integrated for the resource that you're looking to develop. There's a lot of academic work. There's a lot of startups, any uh, large companies working on how you can try new ways of lithium extraction from brine. But you can't take someone's prepackaged extraction process and then try to make it work on your project. You have to take the project parameters, the chemistry, all aspects of it and work backwards and then trial different processes. From your experience, where shall I start? The place to start would be to trial some initial, you know, DLE technologies again at, at the bench scale and start using some available technologies where you can. This is a dangerous milestone. That's the exact spot where we'll find out if all the stars that are so well aligned on the PowerPoint slides will actually turn out well in real life. I have a lithium-rich source, and we just established I'm ticking most of the boxes of an aspiring successful direct lithium extraction project. But it now also needs to work technically in real life and for a cost that's more or less market competitive. This milestone has been the graveyard of many dreams and the most spectacular death at that exact spot actually involves Elon Musk. So I'd better bulletproof my solution before reaching out to him. If you recall my video on the lithium developments around the Salton Sea in California, that spot potentially hosts $26 billion a year worth of lithium, assuming someone manages to extract it from the quite complex brines found over there. Well, 10 years ago, a DLE startup named Symbol Material actually managed to extract lithium from the Salton Sea. It wasn't cost competitive, especially at a time when the lithium spot price was seven times lower than it is today, but it worked. So in late 2014, Elon Musk sniffed an opportunity to secure Tesla's lithium supply for the battery gigafactory it had just built in Nevada and offered to buy the company for $325 million of Tesla stock. But Symbol Material needed cash to build its DLE plant. They refused the first offer. Elon got pissed didn't submit any other one and just months later, Symbol ran out of cash and went belly up. The irony in that story is that 10 years later, Elon Musk still doesn't have a secure lithium stream, while $325 million worth of Tesla stock in 2015 would now be worth north of 5 billion. Lose-lose. But coming back to my project, it means that for all of my efforts so far to be worth anything, I need to prove that DLE works on my brine, what specific DLE technology would be a fit, and at what cost? All of that with a budget of zero because I've spent all these videos budget on renting this Tesla. So I tried my luck and I reached out to one of the coolest kids in the lithium town, Evolve. Evolve is a precision membrane company that proved itself capable of filtering the unfilterable across numerous applications. And while I'd believe their technology to very probably find countless additional applications in the future, from desalination to green hydrogen, their strongest product market fit today is in direct lithium extraction. We're looking at markets where the existing membranes really struggle and cannot provide a cost-effective solution with a minimal impact on the environment. Lithium seemed to be one of them, and we determined that selectivity was the key issue. It's very difficult to selectively filter lithium from calcium, magnesium, sodium, potassium. And we thought there was fantastic alignment with our coatings technology in the first instance. So the team set about taking existing membranes and adapting them to enable lithium to be selectively recovered. And so what's the first project? How does it start? To be clear, Anton, what we've designed here is not just a membrane. We've designed an entire end-to-end -end solution for very efficient and cost-effective 
production of lithium carbonate. That sounded so good that I couldn't resist trying my luck. What would you advise as a way forward, starting with that resource, if I wanted to see what's feasible and what I can do with it? First comment is, and that's a very high quality lithium feed. The concentrations are very good of the lithium. It then comes down to the rest of the composition, but our process is very straightforward. You know, we'll get a copy of the composition, we'll prepare synthetic brines that are exactly the same as that, do some quick lab tests, so that we very quickly get to a full techno-economic analysis and feasibility on what we're gonna to need to do to process this brine to extract the lithium. And then we come back to the customer and say, how does this look? Are we in the right price bracket? Is the footprint available to put this plant down to process it at your target scale? You will never believe it because I'm actually still pinching myself to verify I'm not dreaming, but that is actually exactly what Evolve did. Just because they believed in my project and also because they genuinely are incredible persons. So this video is at the same time not sponsored at all by Evolve and heavily sponsored by them. No money did change hands, yet if some had had to, I would have paid them for all they did. Thanks Andrew, Chris and the entire team, and if anyone has a lithium project he'd like them to check out, the least I can do is warmly recommend them. So what did they do? You sent us some compositions of some interesting brines. We have run them through our lab scale validation and come up with some results for you, and we've used those results to form the basis of uh, technical economic analysis for how you may wish to proceed scaling this project up in the future. But before we jump into the results, it's maybe worth briefly explaining what Evolve's direct lithium extraction process looks like. Our solution basically has two stages. We have the separation stage where we remove around about 95% of the divalent ions, which are the real problems in the downstream processes. So we like to remove those up front with our highly selective enhanced membranes. This is a low energy, low chemical, very economic way to do this. And we are unique in this way that we put the membranes up front. The raw brine is initially passed through a membrane stage which concentrates the calcium ions in the retentate. All the other contaminants that are around it calcium, strontium, magnesium, they can inhibit our uh, process. So our membrane stage is to remove those before we put it into our DLE system. Then we'll do a pre-treatment using an ultra filtration membrane, so UF, and this will remove all of the solids first. And then we have our own specific coating that we put on a nanofiltration membrane. Our coating kind of enhances the membrane and this allows us to target certain ions that we want to get out. So in this case, calcium, magnesium, and strontium. So this enables higher rejection of those and a higher retention of lithium. Stage one really gives us a, a really good feed to take through to our isolation ion exchange stages, where we have our proprietary ion exchange technology to really scrub out those last few percentages of divalent ions and absolutely isolate the lithium in a very concentrated solution. That's when it gets pumped into our DLE system here. And then from here, we can then put it through our polishing stage. When it goes through our columns, through our polishing here, we can remove some more of these impurities. And then we can isolate them into our second tank. And our second tank can then be uh, retained, ready for our refining stage. The refining stage is where we capture our lithium and we make sure that this is kind of what will be our product in the future. Now, the result of this process could be a solution of lithium chloride, it could be lithium sulfate, depending on your downstream requirements. The concentration here we're talking about can reach up to, say, 100,000 ppm of lithium chloride without the use of any RO technology. Now that we're all up to speed with this Let Me Call It Generation 3 DLE process stack, I have two burning questions. Number one, does it work at extracting lithium from my brine? And number two, if it works, at what cost does it work? So you gave us these two, two brine compositions. We have VAP-B2 and VLP-B2. I don't quite know what those initials are. I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. All right, then keep your secrets. I'll refer to them as the low TDS feed and the high TDS feed for now. Stage one, which includes the, the membrane step, we've taken, as I said, a, a 50 litre batch of, of your 
your feeds at each of them and process it through our lab scale validation. The x-axis is the how much of the, the brine we've processed. The y-axis is the recovery of each element. Thanks to the enhancements that we make to the membrane, we're able to, to harness the, um, the, the concentrations of everything else to enhance the recovery of lithium. So in the second feed, particularly the high TDS feed, the VLPB2, you can see that the, the gradient of that line is actually above one. What that means is you wouldn't need to process 100% of the brine necessarily to get 100% of the lithium out of it, which is advantageous because if you follow the, the shape of the blue lines for the divalent ions, the concentration of those species starts to creep up at the end as well. And what we can do here is, is harness that effect to get you a much more efficient way of extracting uh, maximum recovery from, from the brine. So for this first stream, the fine-tuning of the recovery means there's an optimum to find between extracting as much lithium as possible from my brine and going too deep into the zone where the steeper blue curve means my extraction efficiency drops. Now, to give you a sense of magnitude as well, and to end the evaporation pond route we investigated together in Argentina a while ago, has a 30 to 50% lithium recovery rate. So the numbers we are discussing here are anyway about twice as high. Then for the second feed, we'll have to slightly adapt the setup. So this feed was actually passed through the membrane bank several times, just, just to make sure that we absolutely got that out. Your brain has a lot larger TDS, I believe. So I think your membrane stage, so where here we have three in series. For yours, we would probably have to pass through a few more just to uh, make sure we're rejecting more of those. Right. Obviously, the higher the divalence in there, so I think you had around 40,000 calcium, something like that. So when we are processing that through here, um, we need to go through more membranes to get more rejection of those. It could be set up similar like this, but it would just have to be pushed through a little bit more. But then it would come out the same thing where we are having a high hydraulic recovery in our permeate tank with low kind of retentate left there. So more passes, but how much more? I think yours would require probably three passes of the membranes as they are currently sat to get it within concentrations similar to what we're operating with here. And that's not unusual. It's something we do um, regularly. It just means that we're able to harness that enhanced recovery for, for lithium whilst taking advantage of the selectivity for the calcium as well. Good news, nothing to be worried about, but I guess it's time to look for the results and answer our first burning question. Does that daily process work to extract lithium from my brines? Yep. So some numbers for you. Our isolation stage, the, the ion exchange stage, as I mentioned earlier, it really removes those last few remaining divalent ions and isolates the lithium and concentrates it at the same time. This creates an ideal feedstock for any kind of crystallizer, evaporator, electrodialysis system you may wish to use. The membrane permeates coming off the membrane um, are much lower in divalent ions than, than they were as they went in, but really haven't lost any of the lithium during the membrane stage. Indeed, look at those retention numbers, 96% over the polishing resin and over 99% on the refining stage. Again, in a nutshell. Just a process overview. Two brines, both treated exactly the same. And the recoveries I've listed here as well, which are, which are quite compelling, I believe. Lithium remains high, calcium gets gradually removed, uh, as does the sodium. So yes, that process works to extract lithium from both of my brines, which is already awesome news, but pushes us to address the second burning question. Okay, now the question on everyone's lips is, how much does this cost? Wait, we can't give that out just like that. We need a proper build-up. See, that's better. With a total process volume of 1200 meters cubed a day, you can expect these kinds of costs. 3,783 pounds per ton for my first feed, 2,861 pounds per ton for the second feed. So about $4,700 per ton for the first feed and $3,600 per ton for the second one. I've already mentioned how the lithium carbonate spot price has been quite volatile over the past two years, with peaks at $85,000 per ton and recent crashes up to $14,000 per ton. 
But if we take a reasonable, below average yet accepted figure of $35,000 per ton of lithium carbonate, the numbers you see here would mean respectively 87% and 90% profit margin. And even at the absolute lowest price lithium has been over the past two years, we would still have margins of respectively 66% and 74%. And all of that for a sustainable, low carbon, made in Europe, even better, made in Alsace source of lithium. Sorry, I got carried away by my enthusiasm, but there's more to understand in these figures. The difference in the costs is simply due to the amount of lithium in each feed. That's very interesting. That means that the high TDS has ballpark figures, 25% more lithium inside. But on the other mm. hand, that's four times more sodium, four times more potassium. And nevertheless, it is, economically speaking, really competitive. So that's impressive. The sodium and the potassium are, are very much bystanders in, the, in our process. In our system, we're able to process things very quickly and that reduces their impact, let's say. Well, it's spectacular. I mean, does that mean that, let's say, if I say, uh, I don't care about water, let's discharge as much as possible, would that change the, the picture? It would reduce the energy value for sure. It depends how much water costs in, in your region. It probably largely comes down to whether you'd rather pay upfront for the infrastructure to recycle the water or whether you'd rather pay ongoing costs for the water. Now, you may think money's already gone to my head and I'm presenting a bold middle finger to the environment with that last question. But no, I believe I'm still quite sustainability cautious. I'm just trying to play out my original specificities wisely. So if I can leverage this brine canal I mentioned earlier and the water abundance in the region, thanks to the Rhine River, I sure should consider it, right? I guess that's something to establish in the next project phase. Any hints as to where to start? Our technology is ready to go on site right now. So, you know, just there. Uh just put that out there. And what would be the next step? Would you go straight to piloting? Typically, what we would like to do now is to receive some of your real brine that you've taken from the aquifer and process it in our DLE test center here in the UK. Evolve's test center is actually this brand new building I'm visiting here that expands the company's capacity with a real-size DLE module featuring all the ICP steps. We isolate and remove as much of our divalence as possible, isolating that away from what we don't want. And then through our first process of uh, ion exchange, we concentrate that lithium down and uh, store that in a second tank. And then in the final stage, we remove any of the remaining and purify that. What could be the flow capacity of what we're seeing just right here? Currently right now, we're operating at 140 liters per hour. This is kind of an ideal for this stage of it. How long would you have to, to process it? If we got three meters cubed of brine, and it would take us around two weeks, the actual hands-on time would be around about a week. And we can process the three meters cubed at our center in a matter of hours through the membrane step and then the ion exchange um, steps followed up. At the output we will have lithium rich divalent deficient effluent LV lithium chloride. Then equipped with that lithium chloride I could for instance cross the Atlantic and leverage Saltworks lithium refining test center to bring this directly extracted lithium to battery grades be it carbonate or hydroxide and prove to a potential off-taker like I don't know, Elon Musk, <laughs> that it's a trustworthy source of battery material. Coming back to your economical evaluation, is there like a sweet spot in terms of scale? Is there a minimum size from which you say that makes sense? And is there a maximum size from which on it doesn't change anything because the system is modular anyways? At the maximum plant size, as you said, it is, is modular. So there's no real maximum. We have three sizes of system, compact, midi, and grand. Uh, the grand, typically we're being asked by customers to generate 25,000 uh, tons of LCE a year, which is very doable. I would say that the compact really is the minimum size we would suggest. So that is around one to 10 meters cubed a day. That would produce around about 10 tons of, of LCE a year. So if I now look on the horizon and at the perspective of building a grand system, what would that represent? Producing 25,000 tons of lithium carbonate equivalent from the least favorable of my two brine sources would cost me about $120 million per year. At the average spot price over 2022 and 2023, I could sell that lithium for $875 million, hence generating a yearly profit of about $750 million. Now, usually, junior lithium producers like me don't sell their production on the spot market. They would rather sign off-take agreements with car or battery manufacturers. That could be Tesla and Elon Musk, 
as I'm hinting to since the first frame of this video, <laughs> but it could also be Peugeot and Stellantis, whose closest factory is just 20 kilometers away from my potential production site. An offtake agreement guarantees me to sell my lithium, so I just have to focus on producing it while my cash flow is secured over a decade but it usually also means I'm selling my lithium at a cheaper price. Still, even if I assume I'm gracing them access to my high-value, low-carbon, super-local resource for the absolute minimum price lithium has traded on the spot markets over the last two years, so $14,000 per ton, I would still be cashing in $230 million of yearly profit. So if you do the simple maths, more than $2 billion over the typical tenure agreements these players usually sign. I know that sounds incredibly too good to be true, and I acknowledge there is still a lot of work to do before hitting those results. But now I have a very subjective question for you. You're seeing a lot of these brines and people coming to you with more or less crazy ideas, sometimes very good, sometimes mm -hmm. probably pretty crazy. On the scale of craziness from 10 being absolutely mad, don't even bother come with your brine and zero being like, what do you do tomorrow? Where would you put that one? From my perspective, I would say that brine one, the VAP B2, everything else aside, I would say that is an absolute one, it's it's really great. Uh, and then Brine 2, I would say is probably a two or a three. My favorite is, is Feed 1, but Feed 2 equally, as, as you see the economics for Feed 2 are actually in your favor. So it would be a crazy idea not to proceed with that. So none of them gets me the, the, the title of Madman of the Year. That's that's good news. Fortunately not, Antoine. I've heard your podcast. I know you like to um, be that guy sometimes. But uh, no, these are these are real great waters. I was, I was quite excited when I saw them coming in. They offer something that not everything else does. They're very interesting. My scores are based on our technology, how that would handle it. Uh, I can't comment on, on other people's technologies, of course. Maybe you'd be a madman somewhere else, but, but not here at Above. These are extremely interesting to us. In, in fact, we, we even discussed, we, we do have a, a compact system and a MIDI system in stock with finance available. So if we were at one or zero with these brines, if you agreed, you know, we could even look into that. Obviously that's not for this conversation, but that's literally how good I think these, these brines are. That's indeed not for this conversation, and it's not even for this video, but I believe it's a strong sign I'm onto something with this lithium quest. In fact, that's what we wanted. We have confirmation that the process stack we've just seen can consistently and cost-competitively output lithium from my brines, while we still have Ben Sparrow's input that Saltworks technology can bring that said lithium input to battery grade, which we then can market to Elon Musk and his peers. And as doing so might generate more than $2 billion of profits over 10 years, I guess it's a strong incentive to continue this quest. Now, if I'm honest, all of that is still very theoretical at that stage, and it's still a very long road ahead. If I look at my homework, I need now to assess what's happening in the underground, understand the fine details of my hydrogeology and estimate the size of my lithium reserves. As mentioned, I have ideas as to how to do that cleverly, then get a better feeling on how local actors and communities would react to that project. There would be much, much, much to say about that one, so I kept it for another video to not overload this one," said the one who just produced his longest video ever. Then sample some cubic meters of my brine to repeat extraction tests at a slightly bigger scale, then probably kick off a piloting project, and yes, at some point, start to look for financing. So you see, there's still much to do before I can help Elon Musk secure its lithium supply. But I hope you'd agree with me that I'm some promising steps closer to the goal by now. If you're interested in the project's next steps, I've launched a website, lecolithium.com. If you don't get the pun, lecolis are sweet biscuits that are typical of my region's Christmas pastry, hence my logo that mixes a lecoli and a potash rock. I've started the project as a good excuse to put together a very deep dive into the new lithium extraction scene. Yet, as you see, I found stuff on the go that makes me believe I accidentally stumbled upon something that's much larger than me. If you're interested in joining me on that boat in whatever art or shape, you can drop me a message in the comments here, reach out to me on LinkedIn or leverage the website's contact form, again, lecolithium.com. The link is in the description. By now, I've been working on this video for 12 months. It's taken me countless evenings, Saturdays, Sundays and holidays to make it happen. I've been through dead ends and to the bottom of many rabbit holes. It's been exhausting and it's been fun. If you've enjoyed the results, please, please hit the like button. 
The more this video spreads, the better my chances to make this project come true. I'm not doing it for the money. I could bet you my house. I won't make any money out of that story, but I genuinely believe there's a win-win-win-win story to write at a place where for 25 years it's been a lose-lose-lose-lose. If you're interested in the backstory, we can discuss it in the comments. So really, if you want to support me even just a little bit, every like matters. Thanks. Talking of thanks, I'd like to thank all the experts that took some of their time to sit down with me. You'll find the links to the full interviews in the description. Special thanks to Ben Sparrow for igniting the serious side of that story by looking in depth into my numbers. And of course, big, big, big thanks to the entire Evolve team for all the testing and support. I hope we can continue on that road together in the next steps. If you liked my outdoor shots in Vancouver, the thanks go to my daughter, Merci Prune, and thanks to my wife who's filming this right now. If you're watching this in the future or if you're Elon Musk, hi Elon, there's hopefully a sequel to that video exploration just here. And in the meantime, if you'd like to understand how the Salton Sea might be able to produce 600,000 tons of lithium per year, assuming someone cracks the code to its hot soup, it's just here, and I'll see you next time. We'll join forces, we'll be a small partner in your enterprises and uh, explore Northern Alsace as well. I'll take you to the south, Northern is, it is boring. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is two kilos. Um, if I take it and run away, I run away with 60 pounds. Uh, I think that's about right, yeah. I run. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, this camera's...